Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of From the Bar. My name is Olamide. And this is Ife. Yeah, I'm sure you're wondering why it's my amazing voice you're hearing first this week. Uh, and that's because, you know, Ife lost at the poll. Yes, guys, uh, I lost at the poll, okay? Yeah. Corruption is rife and rife in this country. Ife, I beg. Team Olamide somehow won against Team Ife. But guys, next month we go again in the polls. So, yes, that's why Olamide is going first. Don't worry, guys. I'll soon be back in my right to yeah we we actually appreciate everyone's um participation in the polls and particularly the interactions on the last topic i i really found it interesting how we voted at the polls because i i saw some very very funny verdicts but yeah that that that's it um i'll turn to Ife now just to ask her how our week went she's the one who would usually ask me so again guys going second but don't worry truth and justice shall prevail so alamde already knows what happened to both of us this week today or rather this week you know we got a bit of respite from going to court going to the office it was conference week i went to the africa construction law conference alamde went to the sixth annual icc africa arbitration conference so on those both of those conferences were two days apiece so I think that was the most notable thing that happened to us. But us and quarter side, we have something a little bit different, or rather a lot a bit different. Most of you that follow us on social media at Pod from the Bar already know that we're having our first guest. Yes, it's not just our voices. We're joining someone else to this chorus for today. And our first guest is the amazing uh, otherwise known as Sage, or rather... Sage of Oxford. Exactly. We have Sage of Oxford here today. And Olamide and I are proudly dispute lawyers, so we're bringing a little bit of a different flavor today with a transaction lawyer. I know most people, I feel sometimes, don't want to do litigation, and so maybe this might resonate a bit more with some of you. So I shall now turn to Sage, who I'm sure will be very used to reciting his bio by now and say, please, Sage, introduce yourself to the people. Hi, guys, and thank you, Ife and Olamide, um, for having me on the podcast. Um, it's an honor to be your first guest, I assume. Uh, my name is Oluwashion Joshua. I am Shola, and as Ife earlier introduced, I'm a transactional lawyer. Um, specifically, I'm a fintech banking and finance lawyer at Alukua Noibode. Um, but I'm currently on secondment to MTN, um, the largest and most capitalized ca- um, telecoms operator in the country. Now, uh, Shewu is really washing his <laughs> employer on the pod. Shewu, is that how they get promotion? Uh, I mean, you know how um, as transactional lawyers were the... I, I'm sure at the end of this episode, like a lot of people will leave litigation and join us on this end. People already leave the show. Please leave us the small people we have remaining. You know, okay, so uh, just to get into it, really, I, I know you, Sage, and I've known you for some time now. Um, to be honest, I wouldn't have thought that transactions would have been it for you because you terrorized us in your IFE days in Unilag. Tax debate, everywhere, this guy and his people were always there just terrorizing us. So what really um, was it? Why not litigation? Because I would have expected that you do litigation. Then also you could just give us a bit of your secondment experience since it's um, in-house experience alongside the um, experience being a transactions lawyer. Yeah, right. That's a good question really and I get it enough. I mean, I get it a lot of times actually. 
So first of all, um, I would say that my disillusionment with trans I mean with litigation happened during the extension. So the what actually drew me to litigation, like Olamide said, was my days in Ife doing you know um, and tax debates and then moot courts. And that was fun because it was mostly advocacy. And I thought there was going to be, you know, a lot of um, advocacy in court. But when I got to court during the extension, there wasn't much happening in court. I know there were a lot of adjournments and all of that. But I know, of course, that um, certain people still enjoy litigation and um, litigation is um, important. You're talking to two <laughs> litigation lawyers and you're saying certain people. It's, it's, Call it's, us out by our names. Lit litigation is... Is, is important. I mean, when when um, transactions don't go as planned, like we still end up in court. So litigation is important. Every now and then, you know. <laughs> but so so, but for me though, like personally, the what what drove my decision to do transactions was um, and and as you know, if a if a, I mean Obafemi Olorun University has a demonic calendar. So I graduated school in February 2018. But didn't go to law school until November, right? So it gave me about six or seven months, you know, of internship. So I was basically shopping, and then I I did a lot of non-law internships, and a lot of I mean, the first one was with PwC. So I was doing tax work, and it was interesting work, um, and it felt like they were financing real projects that we could see you know one of them was like in the lucky Koyi bridge or something at the time so it, it it seemed like important work you know that they were doing and um, it wasn't because relationship had broken down irretrievably it was because people were actually like in doing projects and they were they were tangible things so that i think that was the first attraction then the other thing and if i'm being more practical is the fact that so for transactional law the skills are very transferable outside of this jurisdiction. Uh, uh, as an intern, even as far back as then, I was on transactions with uh, international law firms, and it was the same documents that were being negotiated. So to my mind, I, it seemed as though like the same skills that are required to do banking and finance work here, the same skills that will be required to do banking and finance work anywhere else in the world. But I, I don't think you can say the same for litigation because I mean, it's just what it is. That's <laughs> so, true. So I can concede it's, it's that. Very, but only to an it's, extent, actually. It's very, it's very the, the skills are a bit territorial. You can easily switch, of course, if you, add, if you do a bit of arbitration. So if you do arbitration work, you are also, that's very global. And you don't even need, if you're, I mean, what's the one in the UK? There's, there's the, the, the chartered institute of arbitration UK. Yes. So if you're if you're chartered, you can you can be an arbitrator anywhere anywhere in the world, right? So I think to that extent, yeah, arbitration is global. But for transactional work, it's the same due diligence skills that you need. It's the same legal drafting skills, you know. So so I, that was the that was what did it for me, right? So it was it was really about the transferability of the skills. You know, whilst whilst I agree that um, the skills. Uh, no, I don't agree that the skills are territorial. In fact, I'll say it's the practice that is territorial. Yeah, yeah, no. So, absolutely. Tomato. No, no, no. They're different. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's you'll still be drafting mm -hmm. when you're somewhere else. You'll yeah. still be presenting before the court. It's just the process of getting there is a lot harder when you're mm -hmm. moving. Unlike 
being a transactions mm-hmm. lawyer. You so, can easily just so move. So the the knowledge. So the knowledge, for instance, of um, due diligence and the process, right? It's easier for you to you know get up and go. Like you can easily just. Um, um, move to another jurisdiction and, and hit the ground running but you really cannot say because first of all the skills you talk about for litigation is actually your knowledge of the procedure right so you and and that's also part of the skills the knowledge of the procedure for transactions is, is the same right so you know there, there isn't much re-education to be done is my point yeah. okay so your secondment experience Okay, my yes, that's actually yeah, that was part of the question. I mean, I I think the most attractive part of the secondment is the fact that now I am doing law, but as a user of the document that I would have drafted, you know, in in ANO. So in ANO, most times I am acting for the lender, right? So the banks who are giving money to, to, to the companies. But now I'm working in a company, which is the borrower side, and I'm having to look through documents, you know, um, interpret them. And a lot of times, as lawyers, you know, in law firms, and this is exactly how it would go, if you permit me. So the, the deal flow for financing is that you would get the brief to give one billion naira to a company right and then you do like a due diligence on them and once you do the due diligence you know like you then start to draft the document you close the deal then they disburse the funds but that is where it ends for you know a finance lawyer in a law firm now that i'm in-house you would have to then the ongoing obligations like you know, filing for like the, the the financial statements and some of those compliance certificates, you have to then read those documents that you drafted in the law firm and interpret them in order to meet those obligations that your company is not in default. So now, it's I'm having user experience, right? User experience as opposed to you know draftsman's experience. Yeah, that's 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 I think the. Fair enough. So I think I'll come in here and ask you what Olamde and I discussed on our very first episode when we're asking ourselves, what is the craziest thing that's ever happened to us as litigators in court? I know that as a transaction lawyer, you're in a lot of ways a lot more client-facing, a lot more client interaction. You know, a lot of our madness comes from court. So, Sage, I shall ask you, you know, in your years as a baby transaction lawyer, if I may be so bold as to call you that, what would you say is the wildest, craziest, oh my God, what's going on here? Thing that has happened to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's now, we're going on three, so please. <laughs> so, <Sorry>, middle aged <laughs> lawyer. Anyway, so I think for me, like, my frustration is always with, like, with the registries. You know, if you had to. Um, no, registries everywhere, everywhere. Everywhere. The thing that is most stressing them is registries yeah. and regulatory it, agencies. So, it, it, because the process is out of your control, that you, you can promise a client timeline. And you know, for for I don't know how it is for for you guys, you, because the the court has to like 
set a time for you to you know hear the matter but for us the client can want a document out like in two days but it's difficult to promise a client that they will get their due diligence report by the at, at a certain date because of one factor not because the guys in the firm cannot turn out the report but because the report will probably need to you know like so for instance this particular experience i'm not going to mention the i'm not i i i, mean, I, I wouldn't mention the without the, breaking confidentiality <laughs> or getting registry. himself in trouble with his boss right, so this particular registry right we're going to register a mortgage there so you can use your mind and then we went there only for so we needed to see the you know registrar of that registry before we could get the application through we got there because we we're trying to beat the traffic the place is somewhere on the mainland so we went as early on this close location. <laughs> on this close location we went as early as like seven and we even missed like our usual nine o'clock meeting at the firm and we got there only for i mean the they told us so like she wasn't like the the registrar wasn't around and we needed to and we just thought we we're going to wait for you know an hour or two <laughs> clearly you you, you, and you, and you thought you know for for and you you it it doesn't even matter that you are at the registry you have like opinions to draft and whatnot and we sat there waiting for one human being till noon now guess what that was not the annoying part then when the person finally came he told us that we needed to wait that she needs to she needs to what like eat breakfast or something and 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 we're like, first of all, you are resuming by 12 noon. And now we have to wait She's for you to brunch, eat breakfast. breakfast. <laughs> As if it was so annoying. Like, and guess what? When we finally met her, she told us, oh, like um, somebody already came and, and we had to go back to that same place again. So this time, you don't know now, like you, you have to be wise. So we went and spoke to because when you go there, and this is like a takeaway for people who do transactions, I'm like, you, maybe you're coming from litigation, you're already, you're used to... Yeah, you see the trenches. You know, to quoting, according to, it doesn't get results in these places. So we had to use street wisdom now. And then we spoke to them and asked them, you know, I mean, what, what, how can we save time? And the person said, oh, we should just get all the documents, like front load them, sort of, sort of. And because we spoke to the person, I mean, even if you had to use like your local language, so the person knows that you're not trying to, because they don't really like lawyers. They don't really like lawyers. They know that lawyers would always, and would, you probably want to explain why they are wrong, rather than telling them, coming off as, you know, like um, proud or condescending. You should just speak their local language with them and tell them, ah, you understand what they're saying. Oh, but because you've done this before and this was what happened on that transaction, the person then would accept because it feels like, oh, well, maybe somebody I up already approved it, then it will go through. So, yes, that's how we got that out of that registry. I think Sean doesn't understand that as lawyers, getting dates, getting certified through copies, trust me, we're used to battling with the registries as well. And we also know that quoting the procedural procedural rules is going to get you nowhere i've been trying to get a ctc from the nic hmm. for two months i've been trying to get a date from course of appeal i've gone there like four times this month god help us all you know you know the, the funny thing is most of these documents are public documents so a lot of times you cannot understand why they are keeping I mean. those documents or the process of getting them as so, like the process of getting these documents are so just extremely difficult 
Well, don't let me even start my talk about <laughs> registries and federal government agencies. Before they kick us out of the bar. <laughs> because those people have showed me paper in this life. But, yeah. So, what would you now say, Sheon, uh, is the, the, um, what's the life of a transaction lawyer like, especially someone who has just started out? Right. Yeah, like, what are the hours like? What's the client interfacing like? You know, what kind of things are you actually doing? Because obviously we're doing motions, affidavits, written addresses. Like, what kind of agreements? Like, just, you know, give us a, a peek into what it's like. Yeah, good question. So, you know, we're like on two sides, like, of the divide. So, for you guys, I think the advantage is that you sometimes get to leave like court early and then you just go and prep for the next day but for transactional lawyers no i mean even if you have to draft some but for, for, for us lawyers, you're probably doing a dd up until like 11 you know so for your first year so let me just you know take it one step at a time as an nyc lawyer um, assigned to uh, banking and finance or capital market just anywhere on the corporate commercial side you would most likely start with due diligence. That is your bread and butter. So and your DD is the responsibility of the NYC lawyer, and then you do certain documentation as well. So what's a due diligence? Basically, because we do financing, somebody's trying to borrow money from, from a bank. You want to learn, you want to like find out um, who are the shareholders and whether they have existing, you know, um, securities or, or mortgages. So you, and that's where all of these searches become relevant. So you have to go to those public um, registries to find out. And then you put all of that into a report. You want to, you will probably be required to review their material contracts and to see whether there are any uh, clauses in there that would be detrimental to the lender and, and, and yada, yada. So due diligence, and then of course drafting as well. So in, on a financing, the NYC lawyer will probably try their hands on like a share charge, you know, which is the borrower shareholders are probably like pledging or charging their shares to the um, lender. And then you you do some review of like an FA. Usually, um, those FAs are governed by. What's an FA though? Sorry, guys. Like I'm used to using the abbreviation. So an FA is, is is a facility agreement, and that's the loan document, the 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 loan agreement itself. And most times, because we work on cross border deals, the documents are governed by English law, so um, they they are drafted by uh, by English counsel. But if it's a Nigerian bank to a Nigerian borrower, it's governed by Nigerian law. Then you know the local firm or the nigerian firm does the, the drafting so yes you, as, as nyc you do all of that um the other um, part of your work is then the advisory part so as, aside from so what i just described is the transactions then you do advisory work so advisory work a client you know is faced with um, some issue and they need to make a decision you know maybe shareholders can override the decision of the board or like, um, how, what, what's the requirement um, under um, the BOFIA for, remember the case of um, um, the, the payment service banks and, and the rest of them, right? So you, you, you're basically getting questions from clients and they need you to, to 
um, give an opinion. So opinion drafting, you do the first draft of most opinions. So basically, that's that's the two basic you know um, portions or, or types of, of of our work: transactional work and advisory work. So transactions, the the financing, either equity or debt. And then there is um, um, advisory work, which is when you give an opinion. Okay, sure. Well, I hate to break it to you, but litigation lawyers, our work is just starting after court. In fact, I wish my work was just court, but there's nothing worse than leaving court at 5 p.m. and that's when your work day is just starting. Also, guys, don't run away from litigation. No, we also get to do a fair bit of advisory work as well. Yeah. But taking us into what is actually, well, the second half of today's episode, which again... If you've seen the title or you follow us on social media, you know we're talking about the ins and outs of financial technology, of fintech. I mean, this magical word that has captured the imagination of a lot of professionals, a lot of lawyers. Everyone's interested in fintech. All the lawyers want to run into fintech. So, Shane, I mean, for, you know, the uneducated masses of which I am part of, please, what is fintech? At least um, I get to talk about something that I am very passionate about. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> See I this mean, guy. I'm very so so. I tell people that I didn't even choose the fintech life at A yeah, No. The fintech life chose me, and I think it's it's quite the. Um, I, I like to tell people that the emerging areas of law are um, some of the easiest ways for you to like your your like how, how do i put it it's, it's your claim to f- to fame right because the more traditional aspects of law you already have experts you know construction law property by, correct do you get so but the the emerging areas like tech law fintech law um data privacy they are new even to um, the OGs, if, I, if, if, if you allow me to say that, right, to the veterans. So just anybody can become a subject matter expert on this imaginary. And fintech happens to be one of them. And it's easier for um, the partners to also want a young person to be the face of this imaginary because the founders of these companies are in your age bracket. So networking is easy. So, and that's why anybody like should get into and the future for because and it makes sense that i am a bank i'm a banking and finance lawyer right and fintech to go back to your question it's a blend of financial services and technology so that's how the word came about like it's a it's and and wow a lot of originality went into that financial <laughs> technology fintech uh, no also uh, uh, actually it's financial services and technology so the definition of fintech simply put is using technology to provide financial services, so, right? So oh, you, you, you wanted to say something? No, so I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I think Olamide had a question as well that he wanted to ask on the issue. No, like I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the... Okay, so in that case, I'll ask the question and say, you know, what are the problems that fintech is solving? I mean, why this emergence of fintech in the last couple of years you know in different markets really right in different markets fintech is serving different purposes so in a market like nigeria i can tell you for sure that the reason the cbn is so interested in fintech is because of what they call they've nebulously termed financial inclusion and it's valid because 
um, I think about 60% of adults in Nigeria are not like banned, right? And of that number, about 90% of them own a, a, a cell phone. So it means that if you can put like technology that would provide financial services on those phones, then you'll be able to reach those unbanked people. So that last mile financial services and to bring people on the ecosystem is what fintech, that is a, that is a value and that's a problem that fintech is solving. And there's so many examples, right? So take for instance, somebody is trying to, they work in Lagos and they're trying to send money to their parents in the, in the village, right? Now that parent doesn't have a bank account, but they can, the person can then send money to the agent. So you have like a mobile money operator like Momo and Paga, right? So you send money to that um, wallet, the mobile wallet, and inform the person on the phone that, oh, I just sent you 100,000 Naira and that you can pick it up at any Momo or Paga agent. So they just go to the Paga agent and that's the last mile um, solution that FinTech is providing. Among other things, obviously, right? And, and that's one. The other one is people want the convenience of payment. So if you think about the fact that uh, if you go to ShopRite, right? The, the convenience of paying with a POS, you have to slot a physical card into the POS machine for you to be able to pay. But what if you wanted to buy something on a website? That's e-commerce. Now, the equivalent of a physical POS is Paystack or Flutterwave, uh, if, if, if that makes sense. So Paystack or Flutterwave is the equivalent of a physical POS. So they, they provide a service called Payment Gateway. So they integrate um, that POS in quotes on the website, right? And then you just put in, and technically in FinTech, that is called like a card not present transaction. So meaning that there is no physical card, but then you can still put in the information of that card on the website. And then the, the merchant, and in this case, maybe, maybe Jumia, the merchant, maybe Jumia, gets value, you get value for whatever it is you have purchased. And then um, Jumia also gets value after you know the transaction is settled and, and whatnot. Oh, yes. Okay, I really I really learned a lot today, okay. Yeah. So I you know the thing is I was going to ask, usually people have problems in terms of um, how like how long it, it takes for probably a transaction to reflect. Or oh, someone says I've sent money, I can't receive the money and all of this I know it's the, 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 there's a settlement process could you just like explain what that settlement process is like mm. for so people can understand that okay this is how um this thing is structured to work this way absolutely so yes good question and today i um taught a class on on um, fintech regulation in, in nigeria um, through the emerging law career workshop and i explained like the transaction flow for payments so there are three major um, buckets, right? So you have message, clearing, and settlement. So message, when you dial star 894-5000 account number, Ash, you're sending a message saying, my bank, first bank, 
pay Olamide 5,000 naira or credit Olamide 5,000 naira into his GTV account, right? Now, guess what? On that transaction, that message I've sent, on the back end, there is a guy who is called the switch. Now, the switch does the processing, right? Basically, the person goes into my bank account with First Bank. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to confirm that my account is funded, right? And then once he makes that confirmation, he then tells GTB to credit Olamide with 5,000 naira. Now, that is not when settlement occurs. So people, so whenever you don't get the alert on time, that's probably because of a service downtime. There is an NIP, supposed to be instant payment. So the, the, the switch is guaranteeing GTB that if you credit Olamide 5,000, you're going to get 5,000 from First Bank because the money is sitting in, the money is sitting in um, Sage's first bank account. So that is the clearing. So the switch clears the transaction saying that this guy is good for it, you know, crediting. Now the settlement is what happens on the back end. In that day, 5,000 people would have sent money to GTB. Another 5,000 would have sent money to first bank. The value sent from GTB to first bank in that day may be 5 billion uh, naira. And then the value sent from GTB to First Bank may be three billion naira. So First Bank doesn't then, at the end of the day, transfer five billion, and then the other guy transfers um, transfers three billion. What they just do is to pay the um, um, that's a short for they net it, right? They net the amount off, and then they pay the other person um, the two billion. But so that's that's exactly that's the flow. And if you take it to you know, a more um, um, common, what's the word, like um, um, common transaction. So let's use the ShopRite example. So you go to ShopRite. Um, Sage goes to ShopRite with, and this is the, if I, from, from, from this example, you can understand the entire ecosystem of, of payment services. So Sage goes to ShopRite with his first bank card, right? Now, in this example, Sage is the customer. ShopRite is the merchant. So I'm using the technical term so that you understand how it works. So First Bank is the merchant. Now, Sage, the customer, is as a First Bank card. Now, First Bank in this example is the issuer of that card, right? And the card may be a MasterCard or a VEF card. Those are card schemes. So it can be a MasterCard VEF or, or Visa, right? Now, the, the next... So what then happens is that once you slot your card into ShopRite's POS, again, like that for example, you're sending a message. You're saying, I've purchased goods worth 5,000 Naira. Debit me 5,000 Naira and pay ShopRite, you know, 5,000 Naira. Now, if, again, processing occurs, right? The guy... And it's an example of a switch is InterSwitch from the name. So they basically just go on the back end. They go and check. I remember on your card, every MasterCard starts with like five. But the last six digits is the identifier. It tells you what bank it is, what bank um, account it belongs, yada, yada. So it, the system basically just goes in there, 
confirms that Sage indeed has 5k to pay for these goods and then sends a message to ShopRite to say, you can give Sage value, which is the goods, but be rest assured that you're going to get 5k from Sage because there's money sitting in his, in his account. Now, once, once that happens, yeah, the, the merchant gives the value to, to, to Sage and he leaves. Then the switch at the end of the day, at that point, ShopRite doesn't receive the, the credit alert, if that makes sense. They don't receive the credit alert immediately. But when settlement occurs, the, you know, all the transactions that have, have occurred during that day, um, which is usually transaction plus one business day or two business days. So that's exactly how, how that process works. Again, guys, this is why you need to join all these classes that Shimon is mentioning, <laughs> which I'm sure he'll plug at the end because I am learning so much. But I think we've spoken a lot about fintech, fintech, but like, what are some examples of fintech companies that we have in Nigeria? Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows them, but for, for clarity's sake. Mm -hmm. so, so people know them, but people don't know what license this person. So for instance, the examples that will come to mind will be Flutterwave and Paystack. So they are gateway semi products or, or payment solutions um, um, providers. Now the CBN in this in 2020, December of 2020, they released some circular called new categorization of licenses and they've, they put it in like four different buckets. So the first one is the switch um, or which you call switching and processing. InterSwitch is an example, Cham Switch, and then you go to the next bucket, the guys who do um, payments, um, so, or, or mobile money op operations, and the examples would include Paga, uh, Momo, First Banks, First Money, um, um, GT Bank, GT Money, right, and then um, there are a number of examples for, and those, they, they're the ones who operate your your mobile wallet and they can receive value send and receive and they have agents who work for them so you have momo agents and all of that okay so all these things that you've mentioned about the different kinds of fintech and what they do has me now thinking i mean where does traditional banking come into play like are these fintechs taking business away from traditional banks and for those of you that are wondering where Olamide's voice i know he has some very strong opinions in respect of this so you're going to hear him <laughs> loud and proud <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think the answer is really yes and no. So, first of all, banks make money from a number of, like, like products, if I can call it that. So, they make money from um, deposits. So, if you deposit your money with banks, the bank can, they, you know how they charge you all of these services and, like, service charge and card maintenance and whatnot. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I will actually explain that card <laughs> maintenance. I will my banks, but my two banks. Uh, I, I feel good. But you know, like there is a there is a circular like call like the um, um, guide for for bank charges. So some of these things are actually legal. There's the, the CBN recently reduced some of those charges, which you but so some banks and I wonder why some people still charge you a certain amount for withdrawing. But if nobody really complains you need to if you really sat down to get like somebody to audit your account 
and then you can then compare what the CVN said. So, so you are doing something <laughs> I don't like. These people will now start coming after. You know, we work for banks. Before people. <laughs> Before people come and start suing them uh, for is illegal, that not, is that not business? Uh, so I shouldn't be saying that on podcast. Uh, no, but there have actually can, been people no, we can, who have we, brought we, for such the, suits. Yeah, uh, we can I give the banks the benefit of that. Let's so it, what, what we can say that the banks are compliant, so there's nothing to worry about. All right. But I know that there are people who have brought like the details escape me, but mm-hmm. I know that are people that have brought suits that the banks oh, yes. have taken like two thousand out of their accounts right, and sold right. like ten million in damages. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. are some people that still have mind, but I can't lie. I don't get my money. So, my so banks, char- charges, yeah. yeah. So charges, definitely one of the ways that banks uh, make money. Then your deposits is how the bank is able to make loans, and the CBN has what they call like a loan to deposit ratio (LDR). And at some point, they've told them that you have to give at least. 65% of your deposit as loans to SMEs and certain types of companies. Now, the first thing you must know is that certain fintechs will likely take that portion of the business away from, from banks. So, for instance, um, if some fintech is promising me 10% interest on my deposit with them, and my bank is still saying 1.1%, which is 10% of, of NPR, you know, and it's already happening. It's not even will happen. So some people prefer to put their monies in like their piggy vest um, um, account and than, you know, to put it in their traditional bank or put it in their CUDA account or to put it somewhere else. But banks still have their advantages. And this is, this is how I think banks are reacting. One, banks are starting to restructure into old codes and you wonder why i was wondering please explain so the reason why they are restructuring before we go into that whole Uh thing i just wanted to make the point that i i don't particularly agree that fintechs Mm. are taking all the business away from banks i don't even no but we no i mean i i don't think it's um the case that they're taking all the businesses definitely not yeah but even the business the part of the business that you um say they're taking in terms of um, it affecting their LDR, that's their loan to deposit ratio. I feel like the way most of these fintechs, or I like to see them as products mm. rather than um, you, you know institutions. And this is this is um, with all due respect to them and the work they put in because they make life easy for everyone. But I see them more as products rather than institutions. And these products, the fintechs in quote rather, or the products in quote need the already existing architecture that the traditional banks have to actually function. So, for instance, you would see like Epigivest still uses um, Providos, um, it still uses um, Wema, you have um, Flutterwave using Wema still, Paystack, I'm sure they have their own, um, I don't really use so many of these mm-hmm. products, but I, I know that they still have a backing or they, they still rely on the architecture that these traditional banks have and they cannot get until they reach a certain capitalization. So in essence, I, I don't really see, I think they're just making life easy for us. Yeah. They're so, making, they making money from it, mm. but they're not necessarily taking business away in from this sense. It's just that they've redefined the way of doing business. Yeah. So, so to the, first of all, let me clarify. There are certain um, fintechs that 
like Olamide just explained, they do exactly that. They basically rely on the infrastructure of the bank to function. And that makes sense because they do not have a license that allows them to accept deposits. Now, a pay stack can help you collect money, but its license is just a gateway. So it helps you take money and then put it in a traditional bank account. But that's not what you know, a CUDA is doing. That is not what the Momo PSB will do. Because other than traditional banks, there are at least four other fintechs that can accept deposits. One, a mobile money operator can accept deposits. So if you put money in that wallet, it is not going to a bank. It is going to the wallet of that fintech. That's one. The second one that can accept deposit is a payment service bank. So MTN Payment Service Bank, Nine Mobile Payment Service Bank, Smart Cash Payment Service Bank, when you put money in those accounts, it will not go to any bank. It will go to that PSB. If you put money in your CUDA account, it will not go to any bank. It will go to CUDA. Even Piggyvest acquired a microfinance license in 2018. So if you put money in that account, so look at these four other options. Before now, and so I, I, it's first, I mean, factually, deposits were definitely starting to move away from banks because before now, there was only that option of a deposit money bank or a microfinance bank. But today, there are two other options. So that's, in fact, and, and according to some um, reports that, that uh, I can't remember the name of the research institute, that is like the first um, uh, um, impact that FinTech will have on banks because the way to attract people away from their traditional bank, and you ask a good question that, why would I take my money out of one bank and put it in another one? It's because the guy is promising me higher interest rate. That's the only reason. I'll take my money out of one bank account and put it elsewhere, right? But it's different for guys who are just helping you take money and then putting it in a bank account. So, so that, that's like the first impact. Then the other one, I, I was going to say, the, the, the way banks are reacting, because it's, it's, it's people think that, oh, like that's the end of, of, of traditional banks. Yeah? I mean, it's no. First, some proactive banks, if you can't beat them, join them. So that's why banks have their own fintech arms as well. So banks are already setting up their own super agents and because they want to compete, that's one. They are restructuring into OTCO because the CBN doesn't allow you to use one license to do different businesses. So they are restructuring into OTCO so that they can offer different financial services and they can see how Stambik is doing. Now, Stambik, the corporate banking arm of Stambik definitely isn't doing as great as, not corporate banking, um, retail banking, um, as much as GT, everybody almost has a GTB account, right? But it is making... I have a GT account. <laughs> right, but it is making money from a sub, another subsidiary, which is the investment banking arm. They are helping people, you know, IPO and all of that. And that is still under the bank and under the one that is listed. So banks are realizing that they cannot rely. So if fintechs are coming for one part of the meal, which is deposit, then let's restructure so that we can offer many different things and diversify, and our incomes can come from many different buckets. So that's why GCB bought the pension guy, right? Um, so they they start going to start offering pension as 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 um, a service. They probably somebody is buying. Um, you know, a, a capital market arm so that they can help people. They will start earning professional fees like law firms 
if they help you you know lease, lease exactly yeah. so these are that's how banks and you don't think that people sit on boards and collect huge money and sit around they're not thinking so the board is thinking you know they are reacting to these uh, challenges yeah okay all right i mean yes even though today's episode is about a transaction lawyer's perspective we wouldn't be us without bringing in some booze bass. <laughs> so just talking about, you know, the regulation of fintech, you know, the good, but more importantly for dispute lawyers, the bad. I mean, what's your take on some of the more topical aspects that have happened recently, like the banning of crypto, although I know offline you were telling me it's not exactly a ban, and then also what then led to the freezing of the accounts and the unfreezing? <laughs> I know Olamide has something to say about this one. <laughs> No, no, you know, I think we're on the same page yeah. with this one because we had a conversation when it happened, mm-hmm. and I and I I think rightly predicted what the outcome would have been right. essentially in the litigation sphere. But I, I just want to get a sense of what the corporate um, or the transactions side really is yes. as to yeah. what exactly is the nature of that ban mm-hmm. and what led the freezing to be honest it didn't make too much what went down yeah i can't say, <laughs> I can't say um, but obviously we've seen that our cbn governor wasn't i know did you no 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 i'm not sure <laughs> I'm not shading him. Another <laughs> day, once. No, no, he wasn't really. He wasn't, he wasn't really paying attention mm-hmm. to it because he had other. In Orlando's opinion. opinion. In my yeah, opinion, right. really. personal opinion, which right. doesn't reflect so, on the so, podcast. But, or but, it, but you're, you're you're right. I mean, first of all, the CBN hasn't banned or prescribed cryptocurrency. So what they've done is restricted the trading of cryptocurrency. So I mean, technically. So is that the way? <laughs> as I understand it, that yeah. is how crypto thrives mm. the trading is what makes it so thrive. by restricting so that means it is not an absolute restriction restricting first the financial institutions because they are very um, like key to um, what our monetary system right and anything that happens to banks is going to be a systemic risk so they are they first of all the it's a protectionist approach saying that Every other person can do it at their own risk. But guys, first of all, no bank can hold a crypto asset. That was what the CBN said. So that's the first issue. Enemies of progress. <laughs> no, no, I, I think... Yeah. I, it's no, because yeah. they want to do Inaira. Uh-huh. No, 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 well, yes. It doesn't make sense, actually. Yeah, yeah. Out, yeah, yeah. And, and, and another thing is I've noticed, well, I don't know, my ad, um, advocate side or... I would say my human rights side mm-hmm. is coming out it's here. Violence and chaos. Uh, 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 the, the thing is, you've noticed that many of our leaders would not be proactive, except there's some direct benefit to them. Mm-hmm. And the financial services is where everyone keeps their money in this country, whoever you are. So the interest and they really will be proactive. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I really, I really understand the point. Yeah. So that's that's the first thing that protectionist approach so cbn is saying guys you can trade crypto but don't bring that mess into my my house so that that's the approach then they then so you see all the sanctions are actually targeted towards banks they've said that they will sanction a bank that facilitates cryptocurrency transaction and how do banks facilitate cryptocurrency transactions before now you could buy cryptocurrency directly from your Binance account. Meaning, if you um, connected your Binance to your GTB account, you can basically just say, credit Binance and purchase 500 USDT. 
Now that direct purchase is no longer possible because of that circular. So if you wanted to buy now, you can only do it P2P. Now, guess what? If it was a ban, it would, also, it would be illegal to do it P2P. So it's because it's not a ban. That's why nobody is getting arrested for trading cryptocurrency. It's a restriction that you can do it, but don't use our mechanism that is the banks. So where does Inara come into play? And also, where did how um, if you can just explain for the listeners, you know, the fr- yeah. how the freezing of the accounts exactly. then came into play. Because it's in, it, now, is Inara crypto? Because mm. the concept so, of it sounds like crypto. Yes, so that's why it's confusing. And like, is it, how do when you, is it? Is it is it in play now, or when is it coming into play? Oh no, it's in it's in play actually, but we we just not getting as much buzz, and like people can't see the use. So, but before we even get to Inaira, like it's the point about freezing. So you then wonder, like it's not illegal. That's the first thing legally. Like something is illegal if you know like by law you establish it that it's a crime i mean and you know like section 36 of 12, yeah, something like, has to be a crime uh, for it exactly has to be written, 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 written the punishment written. clearly prescribed yeah, exactly and since um uh, and that's basically inconsistent first of all like with the constitution right so the the other relevant section to consider is the banks and other financial institution act so there's the section section 97 talks about um freezing the power of the cbn governor to apply to a federal high court to obtain an order to freeze an account now but the ground is that he suspects that reasonably that the account is being used to either perpetrate a crime or is in connection with you know and they would usually allege money laundry but when the cbn then sued these guys you know the, the chaka um, and bamboo and the rest of them he did not allege any crime because no crime was committed obviously they're trying to build something <laughs> or nothing guys you know you know when, when i saw that um order and we had that conversation that day i kept on i kept on asking the question that is there a reason or is there anything that makes or really why would you even even if it was a crime mm. really why are you going by way of an interim relief in court i had a problem with the procedure because the constitution ordinarily says that you um what's called when you're right or when you determine the criminal liability of a person the person has a right to be heard Mm. so it's only in criminal cases that you don't even have ex parte applications or interim applications so if, if you say someone has committed a crime why are you going to enforce that right You've not even it's not been pronounced to be guilty or yeah. unlike in if in a forfeiture proceedings you want to determine that person's liability and you're going by way of an interim relief no court would actually grant such or should grant such an order except you've suppressed facts so olamde is now bringing in dispute lawyer mind on our transaction lawyer no no, 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 but that's, that's on the spot. no 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 this is very very relevant the first thing the first reaction to that is that you know about Mareva injunction. Now, what, why Mareva basically means, you know, not to allow the person to remove the rest. And it's relevant in this case, and it's also legal. That's why they put it in a banking and other financial institutions act. Because you would likely be alleging money laundry. If you were alleging money laundry, it's proceeds of crime. The interim order is not so that the person will not be heard, right? The interim order 
is to restrict the person one from removing the money from that account and putting it elsewhere and that's what him ever does isn't it so you put that the other is to make sure and it's not supposed to be the first how they what was illegal about it was the length of that order if they if it was granted you know for a few days to allow the police investigate but expeditiously right that would have been fine and this the cbn act actually provides for it so that then they now went on to say after i guess the other he refers the matter to a relevant commission for yes, example exactly that is that exactly. exactly that exactly is my point mm -hmm. really that thing is your investigation you don't and this is the law generally yeah. you don't hold off uh or what's it called you don't suspend a person's rights while you are investigating so it's either you bring the person to court and you go and investigate or you finish investigating and you start legal proceedings mm. so that was one of the problems i personally had with the other and the allegation of a crime do you understand right. so like i i really understand what you're saying mm. on the regulatory end but i'm just saying that the means to that end to yeah. prevent whatever it is wasn't done properly mm. in, this case, yes, in this case but the... any other case it would have been relevant because one like and it's not you know that you have a right but it's not absolute if i believe i have reasons to believe that your account contains proceeds of crime right the practical and on some other cases the only the only the only time that a bank has not breached that duty of confidentiality is when you can with a court order right so if no court order is in the picture then there would obviously it would be illegal for you to do so now i'm thinking practically why would i investigate something that the the reason for for the injunction is to preserve the status quo i mean isn't that what they say and if i didn't put that restriction in place i could as well just be chasing nothing because you already moved the money so let me give you a good example a aka and we're talking fintech moves money out of your wallet puts it somewhere else and then i already got wind of it if there was no mechanism of an interim injunction to place a do not debit on that account everybody can just forget about their money and if so so yes you have the rights while the investigation is going on but you when you see free money in your account you don't already debit and we don't go so they need to place that restriction even if you and the part of the money may even be your money but i mean the only practical thing is to wait let's investigate once we then investigate but not once it becomes too lengthy then it becomes illegal but if it's within a reasonable time quickly confirm that this money is not proof of crime then you can use your money that's fine it's definitely a shame that uh, you guys can't see Shiwa. I know he's gesticulating, honestly, because <laughs> he's just, he's completely wasted. But I think I definitely have a much better understanding. See, guys, I've taken the sidelines to do it. I'm not talking too much. But I think before we round up, I don't know why I keep asking as though I'm the uh, plug for the federal government, but can you just tell our people, what's in Naira? Maybe, maybe me, I don't want to buy. Maybe my spirit is leading me that way. That's why I've asked like four times. Mm. You know, honestly, I, I don't even know 
what um, they are doing with <laughs> <laughs> confusion <laughs> everywhere in all the camps. Okay, so, I mean, like the only, the only dream, yeah, yeah. So the, like so people, you know that um, the concept of Enira, right? Technically, it's a CBDC. That's a central bank digital currency. I mean, that one is. So I can talk about the textbook what Enira is. I'm talking about the use. So it's the first CBDC on the continent is Enira. I think that is more, that is what's driving it. To be the first person to issue Without a central, any utility. That's the point, right? So we know that um, some countries, Singapore has it and is already working. Even China has the, what's the, uh, ERMB or whatever. So and people are already talking about the E-dollar, e but they haven't, that hasn't launched yet. There's ECDs. So th these are all central bank digital currency. Now, the the digital currency, right, is different from cryptocurrency, but it is still, everything is on a blockchain, immutable or whatnot. But the difference is that you can see crypto in two lights, and that explains why the SEC is regulating crypto on one hand, and the, um, and the CBN is restricting it on another. On one hand, crypto can be seen as securities, meaning that something that holds value that you can buy units of and that you can trade and the value can go up, right? That is what crypto is on one hand. On the other hand, which brings this under the regulatory purview of the CBN is if it is a fiat or what you call a legal tender, yeah. right? Now, that's what makes it a... I mean, that's what gives, empowers the CBN to regulate it. The only body, according to the Central Bank of Nigeria Act, right, that can issue a legal tender is the CBN. So no other person should be able to use any other thing as, you know, a means of exchange for goods and services, which is why the CBN is, you know, restricting it. Now, this, the e-Naira is a legal tender, unlike cryptocurrency. It is basically just the virtual equivalent of the physical notes, full stop. That's what the central bank currency is. So you can, instead of carrying cash, your bank opening an, an in-area wallet, you basically just have that equivalent of the cash. But if the, the goal is to have like a 100% adoption rate, and... To be honest, when you actually search the intent behind some of these things, on paper, fantastic. Because we use dollars to get notes. We don't even print the notes here. But if it is all on a blockchain and it's just coding and all of that, and we can still exchange because really the concept of money is just value moving from one place to another. And blockchain can do that for us. That means the costs, that's even part of the reason why dollar is scarce. So all that dollar that we use to purchase we that. know other reasons why dollar is <laughs> this period though, but let me not let's shout. not talk about that right so if if you search that the intent it will be fantastic but they're probably not doing a good job with marketing it i think if it was a solution by a fintech by now you know you know the truth is like, yeah. i won't lie to you i still do not understand because okay yes it's the digital um, value of yes. the naira that you have mm -hmm. But um, you have money in your account too. Mm -hmm. That that reflects digitally. Yeah. If you keep your inaira, you still the same value. Mm -hmm. If I want to transfer money, I can transfer from my bank account. Yeah. I can also transfer inaira. Yeah. So 
what exactly is it but i think we would have this conversation offline mm. no, no so the final uh, and there are so many advice not to reduce it to um just notes the other thing that we you are likely to see is transaction settlement time now on the e-naira because it's now going to move away from interbank how the banks do settlement and somebody is doing the accounts that is you see now it's going to be sorry it's going to be on another technology which is a blockchain so look if you have been on binance before you see the number of transactions you see the number of transactions that are going on on binance and the numbers are just changing right so and this is just textbook advantages of inaira so you you can if somebody sends you money right from one bank to another and we said that transaction clearing or settlement time is usually t plus two that is transaction plus two business days with the inaira that number is going to compress so banks can start to settle within same day settlement but we are not there yet i mean is it a good idea yes but i mean like things just like fintech too many people didn't want to put their money elsewhere but now people are like safe lock and whatnot so it will get there sometimes sometime. okay interesting interesting guys so this is a little bit longer than our usual episode but i think that's because you know it's really a two-parter it's life of a transaction lawyer and then it's also you know shell bringing his fintech expertise to us you know shell is my guy is one i'm always calling to ask about cbs circulars every day instead of just googling it myself i'm part of my strong head <laughs> seriously on things that i i am not and I, I would say professional. I'm not a professional. And I like just hear his voice. So I was just here as the moderator, and our dispute and our transaction boys were arguing. But I think to round up, I'm going to ask Shemu the first, uh, or rather the last question. And this is going to be the last question we're going to ask every single guest, which is Shemu, is there anything you want to plug? And knowing Shemu, there definitely is. <laughs> first, let's start with my the workshop. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I just concluded this. Um, this is the third edition of the workshop, by the way, and I, uh, these people actually trust me that much that, so then we, we typically would host these workshops on, um, we've done f- um, tech, law, and policy, we've done fintech, cryptocurrency, and blockchain, and we, we've done sports and music law. So we basically just train people on emerging areas of law, essentially, and at the end of like, by people who are very knowledgeable, on the field and you know and good brands like some we've had somebody from facebook somebody from TikTok, from quidax right so good brand names uh to give you credibility and then so that you can then get certificate at the end of it so you you would if you follow me on social media you see um anyway and on twitter i am um, at oj Ayanshala. on instagram at oj.ionshala and the workshops um um uh, what's the word like the instagram page is emerging career academy yes, okay guys so shema so you guys find him on twitter we we'll had find him on instagram you guys know his full name so you can find I'm going him to sign on, up. so you can find him <laughs> on linkedin and if you want to learn about emerging markets you know if you're trying to establish your niche as a young lawyer or just someone who's a non-lawyer and you want to have a bit more experience so your lawyers or your enemies are not running rings around you you know i would definitely recommend i mean hearing show you already know he's you know he's very well-rounded 
But on that note, even though I couldn't start the episode, I can definitely close it from Ife Olamide and for today's show. It's been us (laughs) from the bar. All right. Bye, guys. I closed it. Bye-bye.